by which he spoke. And so the Jewish religious leaders, they go on the attack, and they started a smear campaign against Stephen. Since they couldn't beat Stephen in public, they secretly bribed some people to falsely accuse him of blasphemy. The charges are given in Acts chapter 6. You'll notice these in your Bibles or in your notes. Uh, Notice these charges. It says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then in verse 13, They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And so we can summarize the charges this way. Stephen is accused of speaking blasphemous words against God in the temple and against Moses and the law. Now, we need to understand something here, that blasphemy is one of the most serious charges in first century Jerusalem. In fact, it was a charge that was punishable by stoning. It was a charge that ultimately got Jesus crucified. And so Stephen now as he is brought in before the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council, this courtroom, if you will, of the Jewish religious leaders, Stephen now gives a rather lengthy defense to the charges that are made by these false witnesses. And yet, Stephen's speech was not really a defense in the normal sense as we would think of a defense in a courtroom. Stephen never addresses the charges directly. In fact, what's interesting here, Stephen's not even really concerned about defending himself. Instead, he's more concerned about defending the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the gospel that what, is what's really at stake here. It's what's being attacked here. And so here's the essence of Stephen's defense. If you want to notice it on the screen, take notes, you can. Stephen defends the gospel of Jesus Christ by retelling the redemptive history of Israel. And he does this for a twofold purpose, to show his accusers, and even to show us here today, that Jesus replaces the temple and he fulfills the law. Now question, why in the world would Stephen take this time as a defense to retell the history of Israel to a group of people who know their history better than anyone. After all, he's telling history's Israel to a group of people who are the Jewish religious leaders. These folks know the, the commandments of Moses, the law of Moses. They know the Old Testament frontwards and backwards. They know their Jewish history better than anyone else. And here is Stephen. He is now taking time to retell them their history as if they don't know it already. Well, the reason Stephen does this is if you go back, he is being charged with speaking blasphemous words against God in the temple and against Moses and the law. And now Israel's history proves something. It proves, he's using their history to prove, hey, that the temple is nothing to be worshipped. And that the law of Moses, well, hey, you guys never really kept it to begin with. You were constantly breaking it. These Jewish religious leaders may have known the facts of their ancestral history, but they were blind to its significance. 
They had failed to grasp that the entire purpose of their Jewish history was all about pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the one who was coming to replace their temple, the one who was coming to fulfill their law. And they missed that entirely. And now Stephen is showing them that. That's his case. That's the point he's making. Stephen's defense begins when the high priest says to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, 1, in fact, this high priest, and more likely, is the Caiaphas who we're familiar with, the high priest who stood over and presided over Jesus' trial as well. And he says to Stephen in verse 1, are these things so? Now, that's a trick question. In fact, it's a trick question that is used when you want to incriminate someone. The question has a buried assumption to it. If you answer yes, you're defeated, and if you answer no, you're defeated as well. For you see, Stephen, he did talk about the temple, did he not? Yes, he did. And he did talk about Moses, and he did talk about the law. And so this question that the high priest asked Stephen is basically the same kind of question you learn in a logic class or you learn uh, in law school if you want to incriminate someone. You ask a question such as, hey, have you stopped beating your wife? And of course, if you answer yes to that question, then you just admitted that you what? You've been beating your wife. And if you answer no, then you're admitting that you're still beating your wife. So if you can ask a question that has a buried assumption and you can get your opponent to answer it, then you can win the argument by incriminating that person. But Stephen doesn't fall for this trick question. You say, why not? Remember, what is he full of? He's full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Luke tells us he's full of wisdom and power, and faith, and the Holy Spirit. Amazing. And so instead of defending himself, instead of incriminating himself, he defends the gospel by retelling the history of Israel, and at the end, he points them all to the person and work of Jesus Christ. His defense begins in verse 2, and it ends in verse 53, as we've already said. It's the longest recorded speech or sermon in the book of Acts. And in the end, yes, we will see this next Sunday, Stephen's testimony of Jesus Christ would cost him his life, but, it did not, but he did not lose his case here. Listen, the gospel would only grow faster and further after his martyred body was laid to rest. And so Stephen's testimony here, I love this about God's Word, it still speaks to us today. His testimony even challenges us today to stand up and to speak out as witnesses for Jesus Christ. And so what I want us to do here this morning is to kind of take our seats in the courtroom of the Sanhedrin and listen to Stephen's testimony as he stands up and as he speaks out for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His defense is basically twofold. He has two lines of defense. The first line of defense is basically this. Number one, in the gospel, Stephen says, Jesus replaces the temple. Now, it helps to understand something about the temple. The temple was the most magnificent and most impressive building in the Middle East during Stephen's day. It was something the Jews revered highly. 
Oh, how they loved their temple. After all, God had promised to meet his people there. God had promised to put his name there. But over the years, the Jewish people started to worship the temple more than the God who would meet them there. In fact, many Jews revered the temple so highly that the building itself became idolatrous to them. The prophet Jeremiah seemed to mock the mantra that he often heard by the Jewish people in his day. If you go to Jeremiah 7.4, Jeremiah is saying, in mocking them, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And that's what these people were constantly pointing back to and claiming. Oh, we have the temple, we have the temple, we have the temple. And Jeremiah warns the people about such deceptive words and putting their faith and their trust in the temple instead of the God who was meeting them there. Despite all these warnings, Israel continued to believe that so long as they had this building, their, quote, holy temple, they were guaranteed God's presence and God's protection. And so Stephen now, like Jeremiah a past, was facing a group of people who were convinced of their right standing before God and of their good relationship with God, all because we got the temple. We have the temple and you don't. We're okay with God. The Jews believed that the temple was the only place in the world where God was, quote, present with them. And so to speak against the temple now, as Stephen, so-called, allegedly was doing, was to violate everything that they deemed sacred. They saw what Stephen said about the temple as a threat to their very existence as God's chosen people. And so Stephen shows them, hey, I'm not even talking about the destruction of the temple, but the replacement of the temple with Jesus Christ. And that the temple, your temple, that you're hanging on to so hard. This temple, listen, is all about pointing to our need for Jesus Christ and that God's presence was never confined to the temple. You say, well, how does Stephen do this? Well, he does this by basically highlighting four time periods in Israel's history, four major time periods. And what he shows is that the single thread through each of these periods of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, and Solomon is that the presence of God is not confined to a specific place such as their holy temple. Instead, Stephen shows them through their own history that God is ever present with his people no matter where his people are, no matter where his people go. Let me briefly walk you through this. The time of Abraham. Here's Stephen's point with it. God was present with Abraham in Mesopotamia. Now don't worry about where that is. I just want you to understand it's outside of Jerusalem. It's not part of the temple. Stephen started by pointing out that the God of glory had first appeared to Abraham not in Jerusalem where the temple resided, but in Mesopotamia. He told how God promised Abraham descendants and a dwelling place in the land of Canaan. And then he told the story of Abraham's descendants, the children of Israel, which brings us now to the time of Joseph. And here's Stephen's point during that time. God was present with Joseph where? 
in Egypt, not Jerusalem. Stephen told how Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave into the hands of the Egyptians, but God was with Joseph. In fact, God's presence with Joseph is the grand conclusion of his story in Genesis. And where did God deliver his people through Joseph? Not in Canaan, but way down in Egypt. And you have to understand, Egypt was an anathema to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. Egypt is, an, is, is almost a synonym for, for sinful, a sinful place. You didn't want to be in Egypt as a Jew. And yet God is with Joseph. Stephen then moved on to the time of Moses. And basically his point here is God was present with Moses in the wilderness. Stephen's telling of the story of Moses involved greater detail. In fact, it's a whole lot of verses here. Partly because he was accused of being disrespectful to Moses. Speaking blasphemous words against Moses. And so Stephen takes a little more time now to give respect to Moses and praise for Moses while showing them at the same time that God presented himself to Moses, not in the promised land, but in the desert, in the wilderness. What's interesting is that the Israelites thought that the holy place in the temple was the only place for God's presence. But when God appeared to Moses in the form of the burning bush in the wilderness, God called that place what? Holy ground. Holy ground in Egypt when they thought the only holy ground was in their temple. And from there, Stephen spoke of the tabernacle in the wilderness, which then gave way to the temple that David planned and his son Solomon built, which brings us to the time of David and Solomon. And Stephen's point here is that God is not confined to one place. Finally, Stephen gets to the temple and he points out that Solomon built God a house in verse 47, a temple they prized so dearly. And then he says in verse 48, look at it. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Remember that phrase, made with hands. Solomon recognized this truth when he prayed at the temple's dedication ceremony in 1 Kings 8.27, when he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, even the, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Here's the, here's the point. A single thread runs through Stephen's retelling of Israel's history, and that is this. God is not limited to any one place even the holy temple on Mount Zion. God had been with Abraham in Mesopotamia. God had been with Joseph and Moses in Egypt. God had been with Moses as he led the people out of exile and as they wandered around in the desert. And even when the temple was built, Solomon acknowledged that God does not dwell in a building that is, quote, made with hands. God said through Isaiah in Acts 7.49, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And so Stephen's whole point to the Jewish religious leaders comes down to this. Listen, he's saying, listen, you guys, you are the ones that are guilty of worshiping the temple. A temple made with hands. Instead of worshiping Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah who is sent by God himself. This temple that they worshipped, that they so revered. 
Stephen makes a point to describe it as a temple made by hands. That phrase is an interesting phrase because that phrase, made by hands, refers to the making of idols. And so no doubt, these religious leaders, man, you can imagine, they are outraged. They are fuming at Stephen's suggestion that the temple was an idol that they worshipped. But that's exactly what the temple had become for the Jewish people. In many ways, the temple had simply become their golden calf, which was another idol made by hands. Stephen even draws this link together. You look in your Bibles and you go to verse 41, and look what it says. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. You see, the temple had become, for many Jews, a symbol of what they could achieve. They were rejoicing in the works of their hands. As pastor and author John Piper puts it, the root evil in many in Israel was that they derived their joy, their fulfillment, their meaning, their sense of significance from what they could achieve with their own hands. They wanted a kind of God and a kind of worship in which they could demonstrate their own power and their own wisdom and their own righteousness and their own morality and their own religious zeal. They got their joy from what they could achieve and not from God. And so when Jesus came on the scene and when Jesus said he would destroy the temple made with hands, you can check it out in Mark 1458, and that he would build another in three days, not made with hands, he meant he would destroy this very kind of worship, this very kind of religion. In other words, Jesus was taking the place of the temple by dying for sin once and for all on the cross, and by rising from the dead as the everlasting priest. Jesus was saying in essence, listen, when I die, the temple system dies. The system that includes all the rituals and traditions, all the sacrifices. When I die, that dies. And when I rise, I am the temple made by God's hands, not human hands. This is why the curtain in the temple tore in two at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The walls were coming down, and Jesus was taking the place of everything in the temple. You go to Hebrews chapter 9, 24, and it says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so in the gospel, oh, this is beautiful. In the gospel, Jesus replaces the temple made with hands. Stephen saw this as clearly as the noonday sun because he was a man full of faith and full of the Spirit. He did not look to the achievements of his own hands. Instead, he looked to God in faith for his salvation and he relied on the Spirit that dwelt within him for his power. And now he's turning the tables on his accusers and he's basically saying to them, listen, I'm not the one guilty of blasphemy. You're the ones guilty of worshiping the temple instead of Jesus Christ, the Messiah sent by God to replace the temple. 
in which you so dearly hold to your hearts. In other words, you're worshiping the wrong thing. You're worshiping a, a place instead of a person. And you have it wrong. You misunderstand your history and what it's all about and what it points to. And that is the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. But there's a second truth we learn as Stephen stands up and speaks out for the sake of the gospel. And Stephen's second line of defense is this, in the gospel, Jesus fulfills the law. He doesn't just replace the temple, he fulfills the very law of Moses. Stephen built his sermon to a crescendo, and he launches into these religious leaders with full force in verses 51 and 53. Look at it again. Stephen says, you stiff-necked and earth uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. Now, as you might imagine, you go on to verse 54. We'll look at this next Sunday. But Luke tells us in verse 54, when the religious leaders heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And you're saying, why is that? Well, you have to understand when Stephen accused the Jewish leaders of being, quote, stiff-necked, uh, that was not a term of endearment, by the way. In fact, that term, stiff-necked, it is the very same term God used for the children of Israel after they made for themselves that golden calf and offered unholy worship to an unholy cow. The term stick neck describes an animal who basically rebels against its master by refusing to wear its master's yoke and refusing to do what its master demands. It's stiff neck. And now Stephen is saying, just as your fathers were stiff-necked, so are you. And then he goes on, he says, here's why. And he gives them two reasons why. Number one, first of all, you stiff-necked, you are guilty of breaking the law, the law of Moses. Stephen points out that far from honoring the law and the God who gave it to them through Moses, hey, listen, you are guilty of breaking the law and rebelling against God. Throughout the centuries, these Israelite people had refused to submit to God and obey the truth which he had given to them in the law of Moses. We know it as the Ten Commandments. No sooner had the people received the law than what were they doing? Moses was still on the mountain, and they couldn't even be patient enough for him to come down. And so they go to Moses' brother Aaron and say, hey, make us a golden calf that we can worship, thereby breaking the first two of the Ten Commandments. No wonder Warren Wiersbe writes in his commentary on the book of Acts, their ears did not hear the truth, their hearts did not receive the truth, and their necks did not bow to the truth. And as a result, they killed their own Messiah. Which brings us to the second point Stephen makes. He says, listen, you are stiff-necked, and here's the second reason why. You are guilty of rejecting the Messiah. Stephen emphatically declares, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? By the way, that's a rhetorical question he's asking them. The answer is obvious, yes. You, you, you persecuted all of them. 
and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, just one being Jesus Christ, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Stephen has already pointed out that their fathers rejected Joseph when they sold him into slavery, and then their fathers rejected Moses when they refused to obey the law and instead made for themselves an idol. And now Stephen is pointing out that in the same way, listen, you are guilty of rejecting the new and better Moses. For Moses is a picture of Jesus Christ. When you betrayed him and crucified him. You see what Stephen's doing here? It's brilliant. He takes a rather very lengthy, lengthy time to do it by retelling their history. But he has a point. And it's a God-inspired point by the Spirit of God. And he's basically turning the tables on his accusers, and he's saying to them, in effect, listen, it is not me but you who is guilty of blasphemy. You have rejected Jesus just as you have rejected Moses. Why? Because they failed to see what hopefully we see today. They failed to see that Moses in the law pointed to the coming of God's deliverer and Savior, Jesus Christ. Stephen's whole point is that they rejected Jesus Christ, the very one who came to fulfill the law. By the way, a law which you repeatedly break, and yet you hold so dear to your hearts. The Jewish religious leaders failed to see, listen, get this, they failed to see that the law, their law, the Ten Commandments for us, it highlights, it emphasizes, it accentuates our sinfulness by the very fact that no one can keep the law perfectly. Has anybody here? Anybody here kept the Ten Commandments perfectly? Oh, no, none of us can. And yet the Jews, what they were trying to do is use the very law that Moses gave them. They were trying to use that law to earn their righteousness, but it was a self-righteousness that would always come up short of God's glory and could never earn them God's salvation. But they failed to appreciate what Paul would later write in Romans 10.14 about Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Whoa! Man, that's the greatest verse in the whole world right now in the context of this message. Stephen's making the case that Jesus Christ is the end of the law because he fulfills the law. The law shows that salvation can only be found in Christ alone, by faith alone. Stephen's making the point that although the Jewish religious leaders, they possessed the law, that is, they had it in their hands, but they were holding on to the outward form of the law and the traditions that surrounded the law. In fact, they even created more traditions, their traditions that nobody could keep. But all along the way, they failed to see what the law had been designed to accomplish from the very beginning. And that is to drive us to the very end of ourselves and to the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the law is designed for us to see, I can't measure up. I can't fulfill this. I have no hope except at the cross of Jesus Christ. And his work on the cross and resurrection. The only hope I have is to put my faith in him because I can't keep the law. 
Now, as we come to the end here, let me just be up front with you. I, I, I have a great fear here this morning. And here's my greatest fear. My greatest fear as we sit in this courtroom, as you will, my greatest fear as we come to the end of Stephen's testimony is this, that it's possible, it's possible for us here today to think that we're on Stephen's side without ever considering that his indictment strikes us as much as it did the Jewish religious leaders. You see, it's possible, it's very possible for us to kind of think to ourselves here, right now, in our seats, what does all this have to do with me? Why should I care? After all, it sounds like the temple and the law is a Jewish problem, not my problem. That's my greatest fear. True, most of us, if not all of us here today, are Gentiles. That is, we're not Jews. But folks, listen to me, and I include myself in this, in many, many ways, in so many ways, we are no different than the Jewish people of Stephen's day. For we too, we have our own temples that we trust in. The work of our hands that we rejoice in to give us self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction, self-gratification. If we're not careful, we are just as guilty of trusting in our jobs, of trusting in our homes, in our families, more than the God who provides them. And oh, by the way, we have our own laws, too. Our own code of ethics that we try to live by in life to kind of prop up our self-righteousness. A law that says, oh, we would never verbalize this law, we would never write this law down on paper, but it is a code of ethics that we think in our heart. A law that says, well, if I go to church, if I love my family, if I provide for my family, if I just live better than my neighbor and my co-workers, then you know what? I'm okay with God. But like all laws, it's a law that focuses on the external things in our lives instead of the inward junk in our hearts. Because at the heart of the gospel, folks, listen to me, at the heart of the gospel lies this truth. We cannot save ourselves. This is a truth that Stephen died for. Stephen boldly proclaims to these Jewish leaders that in the gospel, only Jesus saves. That is a glorious gospel. That is a grace-filled gospel. That is a gospel that only God can provide through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so let me encourage you to ask yourself, who or what am I trusting in for my salvation? Am I trusting in my temples that I rejoice in, the works of my hands? Am I trusting in my man-made laws, my code of ethics that I kind of live by? Am I trusting in those things to kind of earn me approval of God? Earn me entrance into God's heaven? 
Or am I trusting in Jesus Christ alone to forgive me and save me? Listen, the Jewish religious leaders rejected this truth of the gospel. Therefore, they rejected their very Messiah, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord. They were insistent that salvation comes through human initiative or human works and genetic privilege. You see, they greatly revered their, quote, Father Abraham. Listen, they prided themselves in being Father Abraham's children, but they confused genetic association with spiritual experience and depended on their national heritage rather than their personal faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, they were, they were drawing the conclusion that just because they had genetic ties with Abraham, that they were blessed by God no matter what. In other words, they believed that their very Jewishness was sufficient for membership into God's family. How wrong they were. For Paul tells us in Romans 3, 23 and 24, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Why? For all have what? Sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And the best part of the verse, which we always leave off, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. You see, what Stephen and Paul are both telling us, listen to me, is that God has no grandchildren. Think about that. God has no grandchildren. You see, what that means is that each of us here this morning, we must be born again, to use Jesus' words to Nicodemus, we must be born again into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in John 1, 11 through 13, He, Jesus Christ, came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. That is, these Jewish people. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Listen, there's only one thing and one thing only that defines who really belongs to God as His spiritual children. What have you done with Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ to forgive you and save you? That's it. Listen, I, I relate to this so much because Stephen, he indicts, his, his indictment is on everyone here today. And let me just share briefly. I know we're running out of time. But I, I get it how these Jewish people could latch on to their genetic association, their spiritual heritage, and think they're okay with God. Because most of you, many of you know even my heritage. I come from a line of pastors, preachers. As you know, my dad pastored this church for 31 years. My grandfather was a pastor. His dad before that was a pastor. His dad before that was a pastor. And it's tempting, is it not, to think, oh, I come from a line of a family, of pastors, who, who are believers in Christ, that, hey, I'm okay. What do I, you know, do I really need to ask God to forgive me? I'm okay. 
And that's what these Jewish people are doing. They were tracing their genetic history all the way back. You know what? Just because my dad was a pastor doesn't mean I can latch on to his faith and make, make it into heaven and have a relationship with God. I have to come to the point in my own life where I recognize I need Jesus Christ as my Savior and repent of my sin and confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior by faith, yes, through God's grace. I think of that for my own son, Jack, my other son, Tyler. Listen, you boys, and you have children of your own. Each of us must be born again into the family of God. Otherwise, we are no different than the Jewish religious leaders here in Stephen's day. Have you come to that point in your life? Has there been a time where you have humbled yourself in your own heart and run to the cross of Jesus Christ and cried out to Jesus, save me, forgive me of my sins and save me. I trust in Jesus, you Lord alone and nothing else because I know that nothing else can save me except you. Listen, each of us must kind of cry that out to God in our own way. But each of us must do it. I plead with you this morning, don't resist the Holy Spirit like these religious leaders did. Here's the bottom line. There must be true repentance of sin and true faith in Jesus Christ if we are going to find ourselves in heaven with Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and Stephen. Why? Because in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. And I know we've been distracted this morning by the lights losing power. And yet I thank you that they came back on, Lord, for this message. Lord, I believe you have, you have people in mind that needed to hear this. And so we thank you. We thank you for the courageous witness of Stephen. May his example motivate us to be courageous witnesses for Jesus today. We give thanks for the grace, your grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you will open hearts of those who do not know your son Jesus as their savior that they would see their need for Jesus by trusting him alone. And so, Lord, as we come to this time of response, that your spirit would work as only he can do, and that we would do business with you, that if we are not yet your children, we would cry out and we would ask Jesus to save us and to forgive us. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Bill's going to sing a chorus of invitation. This is your time to respond, right where you're seated. Will you respond to the gospel?